Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. We're live from New York City this morning as Good Morning New York gets underway on this very cold Tuesday morning. At this hour, Amazon.com made a decision to drop its expansion plans in Long Island City, Queens, and it plunged local real estate brokers into despair just months after the euphoria that followed the company's announcement that it would open offices there and bring thousands of jobs. But not just despair, also anger. We will get into all of that. Also at this hour, a home may be your biggest asset, so when you are buying a home, you want to be sure you've made an informed decision. Wells Fargo can help you learn about the home loan products and programs that may be available to you. Like your home, your mortgage should provide features that can meet your unique home buying needs. They have a bunch of programs that will sweeten your deal, and I have Steve Lasher here today from Wells Fargo, and he's going to give us an update on all of that, including <coughs> what we need to look out for when we're purchasing new condo developments. But first, I'd like to welcome my listeners in the United States and around the world. I'm Vince Rocco, and you are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate. So leaving a $3 billion incentive package on the table, Amazon has decided against coming to New York City. The company told the New York Times that it won't build a new campus in Queens. The decision follows reports last week that Amazon was reconsidering its selection of New York amid fierce political opposition. Much of the blowback sprung from the $3 billion state and city incentive offered to companies uh, to come to the city. Uh, Amazon said, quote, after much thought and deliberation, we've decided not to move forward with our plans to build a headquarters in Long Island City, Queens. Uh, Amazon's new headquarters was seen among industry players as a potential boon to the Long Island City residential and commercial markets, with some speculating that it would transform the neighborhood into a company town. Long Island City flipped almost immediately from a, a buyer's market to a seller's market, Uh, And industry veterans predicted that the commercial markets would see higher prices and reduced vacancies. Amazon had planned to bring 25,000 or so jobs to Queens over the course of a decade, which led to some concern that the new headquarters would ultimately displace current Long Island City residents. Um, Two New York City Council members will introduce renter-friendly legislation today that aims to curb brokers' fees and modify security Deposit payments. Council members Keith Powers and Carlina Rivera, both of Manhattan, have taken cues from other states and standards already set for rent-stabilized apartments to formalize those bills. Rivera and uh, Powers' proposal would limit brokers' fees to a maximum of a one-month rent, putting an end on the fees of 12 to 15 percent of the yearly rent that brokers charge today. Rebney has put out a statement this morning. They are aggressively pushing back, and they're asking for all of you to either call all right, or right rather, Keith Powers' office and complain. The stipulation aims to make brokers' fees reasonable and predictable for new and lower income renters in a landscape where more affluent renters hold more bargaining chips. The legislation also proposes requiring brokers to provide an itemized list of what the fee is being used for. The legislation also seeks to curb security deposits at one month's rent, which is already a standard in rent-stabilized apartments. A 2017 study by the New York Comptroller's Office found that low-wage renters were often charged security deposits two or three uh, months, uh, and that's pretty standard. And basically, you know, that's really landlord-driven. If it's a private uh, condominium and a landlord wants two or three months security for whatever reason, 
pet being one of them. Now they're saying that they're not going to be able to do that. And as we reported two weeks ago, Street Easy said that if you want to be the only agent listed on your exclusive, uh, that is get rid of the premier agent, you have to pay them $333 per month per listing. However, in order to do this, you have to enter your listing manually, direct through Street Easy. This part of the announcement is getting overlooked. No one seems to be really focusing on this. Make no mistake, the recent Street Easy pronouncement is by far the most aggressive move to date. There is even a sleigh of a slighted hand rather here. In fact, the most important announcement has been overshadowed by that monthly fee of $333. Such drama in the New York City real estate industry this past <laughs> two weeks. It's unbelievable. Look, you know, this to me is is out of control and somebody needs to start putting some uh uh oversight into what's been happening here anyway let's talk about mortgages first we've got Stephen lasher here he's a sales manager and founding member of the wells fargo private mortgage banking team in new york he joined wells in 2003 and quickly became a member of the organization's elite president's club having uh ranked in the top one percent nationally for the past 15 years yikes fantastic see we thought you were great but now this is uh the proof Specializing in new development and loan financing, condominiums, co-ops, and multifamily properties, he has extensive experience with borrowers and developers of all backgrounds and property types. He has successfully funded over $2 billion in residential mortgage transactions throughout his career. Prior to joining Wells, Steve was an associate in the equity research departments at both US, UBS Warburg and Morgan Stanley. He received a bachelor's of science and interdisciplinary studies. That's always an interesting one to me. <laughs> With a concentration in social and economic policy from Boston University. My niece uh -huh. went there. He's a friend uh, to Good Morning uh, New York and has, has appeared before. And we say a big good morning to you. Good morning. So let's let's talk a little bit. You know, the, the, the mortgage rates have been up and down, you know, the past 18 months or two years. They're down uh, pretty nicely again. We are still, though, historically looking at rates that are amazing. So before we get into all of that, let's talk about uh, new development sales, okay? There, there's a big difference between resale and new development in this town. And when buyers are out there looking at new development, what is what are some of the things that we as agents need to know or look out for to make the, tr the transaction you know work more smoothly? Are there programs for new development, for example, that don't exist for resale buyers. You know, currently in the market, I think we're all very fortunate because there are so many different types of products at different price points. Uh, currently in the market, a few of the projects that we're working on now are, let's say, uh, you know, 15 Hudson Yards. Hudson Yards is opening on March 15th. So we're all very excited about that. Um, another large project in redevelopment would be Essex Crossing, uh, 242 Broom, Site 1. Um, they've just opened, they have some great, some great uh, retail space and product there. Um, so I think that the point of mentioning that is that these are really very significantly mixed use projects. So it seems like developers with land prices where they've been the last few years for the projects to make sense for them, um, they've need to have some sort of mixed use component to them. And in the end, I think it's really driving millennial buyers uh, to the sites um, because people want a place where they can live, work, dine, et cetera. Um, in terms of end loan financing, how can that impact things? You know, if a building has commercial square footage that really exceeds about 30% of the project, uh, it can impact the ability for a, 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 a financial institution to provide end loans. That said, those are guidelines which are really set forth by Fannie Mae. Um, uh, however, lenders like Wells Fargo, where we do hold a significant balance sheet um, and put most of our loans on that balance sheet, 
Uh, we're typically able to work through. We have, you know, 15 Hudson Yards approved, pre-approved for end loan financing as we do uh, site one at Essex Crossing. Um, but as example, Essex Crossing is 53% commercial square footage with their community facility, which will have the International Center Are for they 50, really 53%? 53%. Wow, I didn't know that. Interesting. Oh. And I think the real concern for a lender is not so much the commercial square footage or how that could impact marketability. I think in markets outside of Manhattan, that may impact marketability. It's really more about who controls the building in the HOA. So on sites like 15 Hudson or at 242 Broom Site 1, the way the bylaws re read the residential component of the project, the HOA really does have uh, control over their component of the building. And so it's really not a concern. Steve, talk a little bit about when you're buying in a new development. A lot of buyers out there don't understand. If, for example, if a building is ready to close, okay, but yet there isn't enough presale, there isn't enough uh, units in contract. I did hear the other day, and I think it came from uh, from uh, Wells Fargo, that the old 35% presale in a building has been lowered to, I want to say, 17%. Is that true? Or 7%? The number was astounding to me. All good. But I, I, but I wanted you to clarify that for us if you know about that number. I, it, it, it had a seven in there somewhere. It was not 35%. Well, so Fannie Mae sets forth kind of all guidelines for residential <laughs> and loan um, <clears throat> institutions. What I would say is Fannie Mae's guideline is that 50% of all units must be in contract uh, before they will purchase a loan in which we've provided uh, financing in the building. Um, as a balance sheet lender, I would say that while our policy is still 50% formally, uh, we have found ourselves on many, many occasions making uh, aggressive collateral exception approvals, uh, even down to 15%. So 17, I would say, is a low number. Um, if we're financing on a project with such limited presale, it's very likely that we have a deep relationship with the sponsor, their equity partners, and that we really understand that they have the financial wherewithal to see the project through to closing. Yeah, uh, because, you know, I've been dabbling in new development sales for, for 100 years. And, you know, it's always a, whether the markets are good or bad, there's always a 35%, in some cases, 40% of uh, units needing to be in contract before you can close. And sometimes buyers don't realize that from the onset. And when they're out there buying, well, the building is ready, why can't I close? And then there's a whole slew of other issues, TCO and et cetera, uh, to make a building ready to close. But uh, it's encouraging to hear that the banks are kind of lowering whatever that percentage number is, but lowering that percentage just a bit so uh, that the building doesn't have to be so sold. Is there a risk there, though, for the bank to take when there isn't that many presales or that many contracts signed? I think that there can be, but, but I think, you know, I would say that Almost every, well, it's hard for us to pinpoint a number to say to you, you know, Vince, at 17%, we're comfortable. It really is on a project basis, right. uh, project by project. Um, I, I think in many instances, no, there's very limited risk to us stepping in at an early stage. And it's why I'd say probably every day of the week, we're funding transactions that are, you know, uh, 15, 20, 25% pre-sale. I would say really, we like to see things over 30, 35%. Um, I think the real risk is what will the sponsor do if they end up, um, in a little bit of trouble before they hit that 50%, right? right? And so being a single entity owner, if for some reason that sponsor falls under some sort of financial hardship, what is their ability to continue to carry the maintenance, carry the real estate taxes for the units with which they own? Well, especially in markets that we've <clears throat> been uh, experiencing the last 18 months where things are slow. I mean, things are selling, but in new developments, they are not selling as rapidly as they should or as they have in the past. Let's talk a little bit about relationship-based pricing, including special interest rate discounts for 
or buyers that you know uh, make application with Wells Fargo. What what is that about? Sure. So so we have a relationship deposit program with the organization, which allows you to obtain uh, significantly discounted rates on the mortgage that you apply for with us if you have a deposit relationship. Um, as we turn the corner in the new year, the bank has become much more aggressive with that program. So historically, um, we would require actually a $5 million deposit relationship to meet our top tier of discount, which would be a half a percent discount. So if the going rate in a 30-year fixed was 4% at the time, if you had a $5 million deposit relationship, we would reduce it to 3.5%. We've wow. reduced that requirement at top tier down to $1 million from $5 million. These are for the developers or single, I'm sorry, it's like for the developer you're saying no, you no, do no, this? No, 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 no. Or for, for an individual person? This is for individual consumers. Individual okay. buyer. So from, from $5 million to, to deposit $5 million to get a great rate, now right. it's on a one. I thought it was like 100000 you had to leave. So there are actually oh. four tiers. So the first okay. tier and the lowest tier is that we reduce the rate an eighth of a percent if you have a quarter million on deposit with us. Quarter million dollars, excuse me. Um, at $500,000, we would reduce it an additional mm -hmm. eighth for a total of a quarter percent. Mm -hmm at 750,000 and another eighth at three eighths and then at a million dollars, a half a percent. Now the I, nice thing go ahead. about the program, while you know, in spirit, ideally it's that we're going to develop a robust deposit relationship with the consumer. Um, if they do need to deploy some of those funds into the transaction as equity, they are capable of doing that and they will still maintain the reduce rate. Is there a timeline that you have to keep that money in the, on deposit at the bank because say for example they close and then a month later they the million dollars that they put in the bank they need to pull out not that i want to give away any secrets or whatever but, but is there a time frame that you guys put on that that deposit money so so the loan note no he, he's not. laughing so that must mean no <laughs> uh, the, the loan note does not uh, legally require the borrower to maintain okay. that deposit relationship post-closing no but but we do hope to develop some sort of deposit with your charm of course you're going to develop that relationship anyway you have to take a break <laughs> we're going to leave it there this is good morning new york and the voice of america uh, talk Radio Network. We will be right back after these messages, so don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. 
If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Okay, we are back. So we're talking to Steve Lasher from uh, Wells Fargo Bank. Home equity financing. Um where are we with that these days and, and how many people are taking advantage of that? I mean, so home equity financing, you know, you want to take some money out because you want to do some stuff around your house, mm-hmm. right? Where are we with that rate wise? Is, is that a big deal today or is it not? I think we're seeing fewer and fewer home equity lines of credit, you know, at least specifically in my office. You're going to ask me. Yeah. Um, I think we do see buyers uh, potentially reviewing, you know, as we rounded the new year, we've seen, you know, some, some robust activity as a general matter, not only in the purchase market compared to this past fall, um, but with rates having dropped about a half a percent, um, we have seen a number of borrowers looking to refinance. So um, it at the moment, it's actually more compelling, typically, depending on the need of the consumer at that time. Um, to maybe even actually do a cash out refinance and take more permanent fixed financing um, because the rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage uh, on balance sheet is is below 4% today, um, where most home equity lines of credit um, are variable rate lines of credit that are tied to the prime rate, um, which is over 4% today. So um, the rate on a fixed mortgage is actually lower than a variable rate line of credit today. The, The benefit to a line of credit would be that if you didn't need the money immediately, you could draw it like a credit card almost, use the funds as needed, and then pay them down. Where with why, a fixed rate why, why is it lower? Why, why is the fixed rate lower? That, that seems like it's, it's kind of like not right or not possible, but why <laughs> is it? I think that that could be a, we could do a full show probably on why is the uh, yield curve where it is today at the moment and um, probably want to pull in uh, the Federal Reserve <laughs> for some commentary. <laughs> I don't know if uh, I can speak to that exactly, but I mean, the fact is, is that, you know, Short the cost of short term funds have gone up while you know long term yields have stayed relatively low and so it's just a product of where the yield curve is today and so thirty year fixed well historically if you looked at a five year arm let's say short term funds um, the spread between that interest rate and let's say a thirty year fix may be a full percentage point today it's maybe you know three eighths of a percent or a half a percent and so that's really why it's kind of amazing. Uh, what a, what is the what is the the thirty year fixed rate as of yesterday or as of this morning? If you you check where are, where are we with that? It's so hard to to just simply quote a rate without identifying. You know where is the property located? Is right. it a primary residence? How much equity is the borrower putting in? What is their credit quality? Um, right. Do they have a deposit relationship with us? But I would say if you're putting at least twenty percent down, you have strong you know high seven hundred credit scores. Um, even without a deposit relationship, we're probably in the very high threes uh, on a thirty-year fixed rate today. Incredible. I mean, when we when we talk to our buyers and when we talk to our you know our, our clients out there, how can they not understand what a buying time this really is? I mean, you know, negotiating a good sale price is one thing, but on the finance side, the the rates are so. I mean, beyond competitive. I mean, they're just remarkably low. The word historic has been used, you know, overused, but I mean. But historically low. I mean, I keep saying on this program, I started my first mortgage was 17% interest. And I thought I robbed the bank because it had been, you know, way higher than that, 19, 20, 21%. And I'm not talking that long ago. Uh, and then when I got a, a 30-year fixed and it was at 7%, 
in the late 90s, I think, early 2000s, I thought, wow, I really hit the jackpot. 7% fixed for 30 years. My dad would be, you know, elated with that because you need a fixed mortgage and it's got to be 30 years and, you know, the whole, you know, old-timer mentality. But 7%, unbelievable. Talk a little bit about the cash purchase option that allows buyers to purchase with cash up front. And then there's like a 90-day window where you can go and take and refinance, I guess, or, or, or take money out. This, I think, is a great option for people who want to close quickly, and so they do a cash deal, and then they want to pull money back for whatever reason, to put cash back in the bank. Sure, which we see a lot of in the New York market. So um, which we, we define it as a, a cash recoup program. So what it allows the borrower to do is to purchase and close in cash. And as long as they make application with us within 90 days of closing in cash and they can document that they did use their own funds, that there are no liens placed against the property, they can borrow from themselves. So let's say a buyer has a large or significant bond or or equity portfolio that they're not looking to liquidate and they want to borrow and take a line of credit against that to purchase, um, it would still qualify for our cash recoup program. Essentially, the benefit is that you retain, um, you obtain the benefit of the same amount of leverage you would be able to take on a purchase money transaction and the same rates. Typically, if you were coming to us looking to just extract equity and do a cash out refinance, we would probably, we wouldn't probably, we would upcharge the rate. There would be a premium um, for that and the additional risk associated with the transaction. Um, and we would likely give less leverage. So maybe 50, 60, 70% rather than 70, 80, or even 90%. And your point as it relates to rates, I mean, I think that we're actually seeing the impact in the market. Um, I, I don't you know, everyone at this table um, is, are, are, I believe, real estate brokers and, and know the market better than I do in terms of, you know, the in and outs of day-to-day -day transactions. But we've seen a, seen a great, a significant uptick since the beginning of the year. And I think that that's partially predicated on the fact that interest rates are down by about a half a percent. Um, so that those are real dollars. I think also, you know, the economy, whether you believe in, you know, it being strong or not, the fact is, is buyers, people in the market have money right now. So the buyers that we're speaking to, they have significant portfolios of assets, even with the market having dropped a bit. Um, they've had a couple really good years in the market. It's very different than the credit crisis that we saw in 2008, where people were out of work, they didn't have liquidity, they couldn't gain access to liquidity. The buyers that I'm speaking to, typically, they have a lot of money right now, and interest rates are low, and they see the benefits. So, well, I think people have held out a little bit from buying, and you know, somebody said to me the other day, not that I need to, needed to be rem reminded, but you know, while people sit back, they're holding on to their money, they're making more money, they're putting it aside to do a home purchase. New Yorkers, you know, by by trade, can't sit on the sidelines for too long. Ultimately, they will get up and say, "Enough of whatever is happening out there." I have to buy, I need to buy, I want to buy, and I'm going to buy. So, you know, you can hold them back a little bit. They can go from a buyer's market, a seller's market, a high high interest rates, low interest rates, and they get ticked off and they they kind of sit back and, and, and don't do anything. But after a while, almost all of them, and that's how we have seen our markets change almost on a dime because it is that emotional and it's that got to do it, ready to go, time to buy, and they do. Before we go to break, 10.01% down payments. Now, this is interesting. What is the 0.01%? And, 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 and how flexible is Wells Fargo with 10% down payments? 
So we're very comfortable providing what we call an 89.9% uh, financing. Um, that one, for, that, that for whatever, one again, here we go. I think for some reason, there's probably just a bad connotation um, based on 90% financing or greater. Um, I think that there's just a certain comfort, comfort level being below 90%. Um, that said- um, 21%. <laughs> We, but you know, that's it. You want to be competitive in the market and you want to be able to, you know, provide products that, you know, help consumers um, gain access to the homes that they want to live in. And so it's why we have the program. It does require that you have strong credit quality, 740 minimum credit score. Um, 740. Yes. Um, a 38%, you know, max, what we call debt to income ratio. Um, and really, we don't typically allow for gifts uh, to be provided for the 10% earnest money that's being is that 38% up from 35% or has it always been your policy for 38%? Because, you know, when we're looking at co-ops, sometimes, you know, the, the numbers are all over the place, but 38% seemed a little high. On this product, we allow for the 38%. Okay. What are the rates? Are they lower, uh, higher, I mean? Uh, Great question. There's a slight premium in rates. So I think one of the benefits of the program is that we do hold loans on balance sheets. So there's no PMI or primary mortgage insurance, right. which I think people always associate with loans that are over 80% yeah. financing. Mm -hmm. Um, and the rate premium, candidly, is m minimal, candidly, in my opinion, based on the amount of additional risk when you go over 80%. Um, so if the rate were, you know, 3.875% at 80, it would, let's say, be 4% um, up to 85. And then between 85 and 90%, it would, let's say, be 4.125%. Mm -hmm. So really an eighth to a quarter premium in rate. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a great product. One of the nice benefits of the product is that you know if you are actually selling a property at the same time that you're purchasing and you're a little bit illiquid during that short you know time frame let's say 6 months what the bank will allow you to do is if you pay down the loan below 80% within the first six months of carrying the debt, we will actually recast and reset the payment back to the lower rate. So if you go at 90% no. and we close at four and an eighth, if you pay down the mortgage below 80% within six months, i.e. you've bonused out, you've sold your departure residence, mm -hmm. we will reset the payment and the rate at wow, the 3.875. All right, we have to leave it there. Steve's going to stick with us, uh, stick it out with us for the rest of the show. We're live from Blast Off Productions here in New York City. This is Good Morning New York. We will continue on the other side of the break, so don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees.
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back, and we are here with the panel. Ari uh, Harkoff from Halstead is here, Noah Kaplan, Nest Seekers International, Matthew Cohen from CORE, Bill Horrigan from Freely and Leasebreak.com, and Jordan Shea, from Douglas Elliman. All right, listen. So, at the top of the show, I'm reading all the drama in 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 the New York City real estate uh, market <clears throat> this past two weeks. I want to start with Amazon because uh, their decision to drop its their expansion expansion plans on Long Island City plunged. So the stories go: local real estate brokers, you know, heads of firms, uh, local uh, agents. Uh, into despair just months after the euphoria that the uh, that followed the company's announcement that was going to bring not only jobs to um, Long Island City or, or Queens, but lots of sales and lots of rentals for individual brokers. And so earlier this week or end of last week, when they decided to pull out, you know, why why the drama? I mean, you know, my my position is we didn't have it to begin with, and we don't we're not going to have it going forward. So. Keep up with your business. Just do what you're always doing. What's the deal with this? I mean, why, you know, and, and how will it affect, you know, the rest of the boroughs out there? Manhattan, Brooklyn, you know, Staten Island, but we don't really consider that because it's not close enough to the source. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not ranking on Staten Island. I'm just saying it's not it's not close enough to the source. To the source. The source of LIC yeah. and, and yeah. Amazon. We love Staten Island, of course. I have friends there. Anyway, what what what's what's the drama about? I mean, I, I'll say a couple of things. First off, uh, the the uptick in activity in Long Island City around Amazon was obviously speculative because Amazon never came to Long Island City. Right. So the buying, the fervor around what was potentially going to happen was all based on speculation. That's the first thing. Second thing is New York City is, and I was just reading this, I think it's New York City is as large as the second, third, and fourth largest cities in the country combined. We're by far and away the largest economy in the country. And Amazon basically, if you kind of like parse their message, essentially said, we love New York and we have to be here regardless. I don't think this is the end of the story. I think they may figure out a way to expand more quietly. I think they may not get the tax breaks that they had hoped for. They may not build a campus the way they were going to build one. But ultimately, they already have, by the way, 5,000 employees here. And they will continue to expand because they need to be here. And the reason they chose New York City was not from a cost perspective. It was to target talent, the talent that's here and the talent that wants to be here. Ari, let's talk about perception for a minute, okay? Because following the news that, that Amazon has pulled out, okay, uh, and they're not going to build or, or, or develop in, in Long Island City. Shortly thereafter, a day or two later, a big story comes out in the press that says they've made $19 billion <clears throat> something dollars in sales last year and paid zero federal taxes. So how do you, you know, how does the, the, the you know, the, the common person out there who works very hard and pays their taxes every day, how do they deal with stuff like that? A, they're coming, now they're not coming, and B, they're a big conglomerate, and Jeff Bezos, you know, owns half the world, and now they pay zero taxes. What is that about? 
I mean, I think so. A couple thoughts. First is I'm admittedly a very liberal person, so I have I have misgivings on both sides of the equation. But the reality is the Amazon deal was going to be a nine to one ratio between tax revenue and incentives. So for three billion dollars in incentives that we were going to provide to the company, they were going to generate around twenty seven billion in tax revenue over ten years. So roughly two point seven billion a year, which is effectively in one year we would break even on them. So the number of schools, homeless shelters, infrastructure, what we could have done with that funding for the local economy is extraordinary for low and middle income New Yorkers. So I think that this whole idea of like, oh, we got rid of the big bag wolf and that's good for us, I think is actually not good for it's us. It's short-sighted, right? It's, it's very short-sighted. It's very short-sighted. <clears throat> um, yeah. You know, as far as Amazon being the wealthiest company in the world and Jeff Bezos being the wealthiest person in the world, I mean, it is what it is. Someone has to be there. Um, but ultimately, it would have done a great benefit to New York City, low, middle, and upper income. And outside of that, as as you know, people have to pay taxes. We just cry when we think about it. You know, um, <laughs> I think right, that check. I've got to do that very soon, and I'm not happy about it. I always say that as as real estate brokers, like 90 percent of our job is managing expectations. Yeah. So I think that the, I think that the city and I think that the government actually didn't manage people's expectations very well about the whole Amazon, you know, move. And and I also, the first thing I thought of when I saw the news was I feel bad for all the brokers in Long Island City who really specialize there, like well, modern spaces. Because yeah. yeah. I could see, <clears throat> you know, excuse me, I could see like an uproar mm. of buyers who bought right after the announcement, you know, who were either convinced by their brokers that it's an amazing thing. Like I, I'm a big, you know, believer of, until it's signed, like don't don't make any big moves. One hundred percent, exactly. Broker told me that this is going to be a great buy, and Amazon's coming in, and I have to be here. I mean, the repercussions. Are well, by the way, they're extensive. going to be. I agree with you because buyers did sign on the dotted line, and buyers did buy stuff with the hopes and dreams that they were going to be, you know, working for uh, Amazon and LIC. That's where I get concerned because. I mean, it's nobody's fault, really. But as Matt just said, I'm of the belief that until something is signed, uh, you know, especially when when you're investing in a home, that's we're talking, you know, lots of money. In some cases, millions of dollars. Let's move on to Street Easy, the new strategy. So this is not new news. It's two weeks old, maybe three. Uh, you know, our chairman of our company <clears throat> has made a statement to us in a sales meeting recently that they're working with Rebney, the Real Estate Board of New York, to fix this problem. I'm not so sure or convinced that it's going to happen so quickly. What What's the feeling out there with, you know, uh, agents having to pay $333 per month per listing in a marketplace where a listing can stay on the market for six months plus? And if you're a listing agent like I am and you have more than one listing at a time, you know, you're talking about lots of lots of thousands of dollars paying street easy for listing your property. I'm I'm not quite sure I get it. I'm I just want to say something that doesn't sugarcoat this whole thing like it, 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 blanket statement out there that I think a lot of brokers care about is who cares where the buyer is coming from? This is how I feel specifically. We're in a market that's not amazing. Steven, you're 100% right. Like There are more buyers than there were at the end of last year. Completely true. But the market is still not great. And there's still a lot of apartments that are sitting there and a lot of apartments that are not selling. So if I'm selling an apartment and, you know, I'm not quote unquote the only person on that listing to the public and it's coming from maybe someone who paid Street Easy to get leads or whatever. As long as it helps me sell the apartment, I got to tell you, I'm pretty happy about it. The, the issue though to me is, in, I mean, that <clears throat> I hear you on that, but the issue is more about transparency. So by the way, and just Matt brought up the whole premier agent where 
the listing agent is not on the listing, but some buyer's agent is now on the listing. That's been the case for a while. However, those that don't know, they changed it again in the last three weeks, those that are paying attention. If you look at your listing now, it says contact seller's agent in the smallest possible print. You need like a magnifying glass to see it. And it's all the way at the very bottom. So On they the completely change it. They say, we will recommend a buyer's agent for you. Click here. Right. So for me, this is all about transparency and about the integrity of the real estate marketplace, which is unfortunately going in the wrong direction. I mean, we already have a bad enough reputation as brokers and we're trying to bring things up. And now we have unfortunately, a company that is just doubling down on this and making things less transparent. Correct. Well, my, my, mm. my concern also is, you know, we're taking it, you know, to, to our level, which of course, or the buyer's level, as Matt was mm. talking about. My concern is this is going to become a seller's problem because the sellers don't know what this is all about. They don't care what this is all about. And if you don't list their property because you don't want to pay the fee, just like on the rental side, last year when we started with that, you know, $30 a month per listing, whatever it was, the seller doesn't get to see their property on Street Easy. And, you know, it's the holy grail. That's that's where they go first. When they give you a listing and they sign it up with you and your company, that's the first place they go to look to see if the listing is up, what it looks like, pictures, floor plan, text, etc. Now, if they don't see it there, that I think is where the problem is going to become much more, uh, you know, um, crazy well, than, than it is with, with just buyers. I was going to say, I mean, so if you think about like how the New York City real estate market and real estate markets overall have evolved, we as brokers pay to advertise our properties where the eyeballs are. You know, there was a day and age 20 years ago when every real estate brokerage firm had to have prime retail real estate space on a major avenue in New York City. Yeah. People don't, we have one on Broadway, our office is on Broadway. People don't buy real estate based on seeing a sign in a window anymore. There was a time when we advertised in New York Times, you know, classified section because people walked around at open houses with, you know, yellow highlighters and picked up real estate from the back of the New York Times real estate section. At this point in time, whether we like it or not, as a brokerage community, we're stuck with the reality that the eyeballs are on Street Easy in New York City. And whether we like it or not, we have to pay to be there because that's where the eyeballs are. That may change in three to five years. I think what we're all unhappy about as an industry is the fact that we saw this coming, but we did nothing about it collectively. And now we're dealing with the monster that we created. A hundred percent. I mean, mm -hmm. I, it's a failure of the community that this happened in the first place. Mm -hmm. We cry, we are crying wolf and foul and every other thing about this. And it's our fault. It's Rebney's fault. It's our fault as brokers. We don't have an RLS. We don't have a system that is easy for people to actually parse. And so we were upset. They're charging us fees. Well, yeah, of course they're charging us fees. They're a business. Hey, can I just say on the, on the positive side? So this we need an MLS. Right. Basically well, we have we haven't we don't have a true MLS, and that's the problem. The, the, we this should be an MLS one. Every other place in the country has most other places have a place where brokers all go into the same interface and they enter their listing into Absolutely. one place, and then this creates the MLS where all the brokers can see all the listings, and then that collectively mm -hmm. they have power, and then they feed that to Street Easy or Zillow in the other places, right? In New York City, that doesn't exist. So right now, people are posting in a million different ways. I still think the best way is to get all the brokers to post in the RLS directly. Right. And this way, they will start to have this, this take some of this power back. I mean, these are your listings. These are brokers' listings. So it's just unbelievable to me that someone could basically, they, create, they became street easy by taking your listings for free and saying, and I remember this saying, 
don't worry, we're not going to charge. We're on your side here. We're for the brokers. Once you get the monopoly power, then you start charging. But I wanted to tell you that the, the positive side is this will 100% change. There is no question in my mind. It's already changing. So on the rental side, the rentals went from 32000 they had on their site to 15000 Consumers don't even know this yet, but they're starting to figure it out. If they start to do the same thing on sales, where they have a mandatory pricing on sales, well, which they me, don't yet, well, let me they'll lose that. Let me too. stop yeah. you there for yeah. a minute. So, winter, I mean, the consumer <clears throat> doesn't really realize, right. right? But don't they? Don't you think that they realize that there are less yes. rental opportunities? Yes. Out so there? I have That's data. How they're processing exactly. That. So I have data already proving. I mean, we can go through it, but where they're getting less rental traffic. Yeah. And they're, they're renting less things through StreetEasy. So there are, because one thing Lease Break does is we always, when someone posts, we say, hey, if you didn't rent it through us, where did you rent it from? We've been asking that question for like five years. It's unbelievable to see the percent that's rented through StreetEasy has gone down since 2017. So this is, no, it's, no, it's going to change. You can't treat your customers this way and expect there to be no consequences. Right. Well, I was actually, I was, I was at brunch on Saturday with uh, a friend of mine who's a real estate attorney. So we were talking about real estate a little bit and we, were, we, we made a joke about StreetEasy and how hopefully with all the Amazon drama, um, Amazon can acquire StreetEasy <laughs> and discount the prices Don't like they did with Whole Foods. Jeff like, Bezos, honestly, he's already looking Jeff to start a real Walker Tower, he, he should go for it. Like, he's already starting thinking. He should about come on the show. Like, he, he would do something I mean, separate and compete. I think. I don't yeah, know if I, he would I think buy. he'd just become a broker. He's, yeah. yeah, right. Totally. Yeah. Well, look, look, Amazon real estate. Yeah, no, it'll, it'll happen. It'll happen. Don't even put that in the airwaves out there because before you know it, it's going to happen. Hey, I love. I I don't know about you guys, but I get my books cheaper than you know. I mean, listen, I made six orders. This past week, it's, <laughs> it's only Tuesday. Six orders from Amazon from Sunday to yesterday. So I don't. I, I, I can't live without it. The door people with know. the boxes downstairs are amazing. Oh, unbelievable. Anyway, let's move on. Hesitancy uh, in the marketplace really began in 2016 with the then presidential election. So here we are. Uh, two years later, where are we? Do you still see hesitancy or do you see that things are turning just a little bit or not at all? I'll just say that I think a combination of the lower rates, you mentioned they're down by about a half a percent, uh -huh. right? Um, the lower mortgage rates and the fact that prices have come down, that is a nice combination. I think that's the, one of the main reasons why we're seeing a nice little bump. I hope that that is still the case like six months from now because I am worried if mortgage rates start creeping up again. Well, but, 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 but rates are one component of the, of the overall process, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. we look at the marketplace and when we talk about hesitancy, okay, I'm not so sure it's really about the rates. I think it's about just the, the perception that's out there in, in the world in, or locally here in New York City that things may be a little unstable at the moment and we're not quite sure where to go with the instability. So therefore, I'm going to just sit on the sidelines as we talked a little while ago, people banking their money, kind of sitting on the sidelines and then all of a sudden they start saying, well, you know what? I need to do this. I have to do this. I want to do this. I'm going to do this. My question, I guess, is have people started saying that? And do have we seen people starting to get off the chair and say, okay, it's time to do it? I mean, I would say yes and no. I think there's a tremendous lack of urgency in the market right now. So we're seeing you know, the buyer who comes and sees a property, three weeks later, they bring their mother, two weeks later, they bring the architect. And you know, two weeks after that, they make an offer. 
most of our listings, and you guys can agree or disagree, are sitting on the market for two, three months on average. Many of them are undergoing multiple price reductions. So I think there's there's a clear disconnect between where the buyers are and where the sellers are. With that being said, on the positive note, what we are seeing is every property, when it gets to the right price, is selling. We're selling everything. It's just taking longer, and it's a much more labor-intensive process than it was. But to Steve's point, the people have the funds. It's not about a lack of liquidity. And to Steve and Phil's point, the financing is very attractive and frankly, historically cheap. It's an issue of urgency and confidence in the future. And I think both of those things are missing right now with the exception of really well-priced properties and the properties that are well-priced are moving. So urgency, lack of urgency because of what they perceive. They're not confident in the future. I think the the issue right now is that buyers feel we're heading for a recession. It has to happen historically that, you know, the U.S. economy moves in seven to 10 year cycles. But the financiers are saying that's not going to happen. I know. But but people feel it in their bones. Mm -hmm. And because they feel it, it becomes reality, whether or not it is reality. And and I think Ari's right about, you know, it's two or three years ago, buyers, you know, they saw something, they liked it. They pulled the trigger. There was a hundred percent, like no percentage of that was, you know, any um, negative thought. And now people like, I find that buyers are engaging a lot of people. So buyers are engaging their attorneys. They're engaging their mortgage lenders. They're getting ready to pull triggers. And then they're 60% into it. And then they don't actually go all the way. Like, I think that it's just, you know, that there are a lot of offers out there and there's not a lot of transacting. That's what I find. Is it true that it's a very neighborhood dependent market? So in other words, when a buyer does decide to buy and they realize they're going to pull the trigger because it's the right thing to do, et cetera, is it a neighborhood driven decision or is it just the best priced anywhere? Best price anywhere. I think one of the shifts that we've seen in New York City real estate in the past five to 10 years is sort of a, a homogenization of different neighborhoods. So if you look at like the retail landscape, if you look at the type of buildings that are being built, you know, you have access to kind of like the same big, big box retailers, the same banks, the same coffee shops in so many different neighborhoods. And then when you get to a market like now where buyers are very value driven, it's more about where can I buy and get, get the best bang for my buck and less so I must be on the Upper East Side between X and X or I will not buy. There are exceptions, obviously, school districts and things like that. Um, But by and large, I think what we're seeing is people are buying based on value opportunity. And there's been a kind of a flattening of the differentiation between different neighborhoods. We see it in Manhattan and Brooklyn. I mean, people see kind of like Park Slope and Borum Hill is the same. It's not Mm. the same, but they see it as the same. They see it. Yeah. Interesting. And then I think, you know, outside of years past where it was location-based, I think it's actually now building-based. Like, I find that there are a lot of people who come to me and they're like, I like this one project. Tell me more about it. Like, you know, like, think of one Manhattan Square. I mean, that's that building is a neighborhood in and of itself. It's so big. So, like, people Well, from new development, I agree with you, yes. I I think it becomes a building or or a project uh, type of uh, selection. What's considered good traffic activity for a townhouse? By the way, the 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 village townhouse market is the hottest townhouse market anywhere right now, according to statistics from two weeks ago. But what do we consider good traffic? And I need this information because I'm about to hopefully list <laughs> one, and my seller doesn't necessarily understand what good traffic is in the townhouse market. Frankly, in the townhouse market, if you have a showing a week, you know that's right. You've got a list. If you have one showing a week and two inquiries a week, right. you should count your lucky stars. Right. Twenty-five people are not showing up at open. Twenty-five house. people aren't, and it will take you between a year and a half to two years to sell a townhouse. 
It just takes forever. They're I'm already very old, long. Jordan. I don't want two <laughs> years to sell the town. I mean, you said a hundred years yeah, ago. I, you know? years I, ago. Like, I thought it was a hundred ten years ago. I look good for a hundred years old. You told me that this morning. There you go. No, but seriously. So one to two appointments a week, maybe one to two showings a week, uh, whatever. One year on the marketplace. That's very interesting because on a hot market, we sold this place in. Yeah, six months. It took about six months. I mean, just look at the Olshan report and the number of townhouses that have contracts yeah. signed. Yeah. I mean, it's just abysmal. Like, I'm sorry, like one in the city, two in the city, three in the city, like it's nothing. It's very low traffic. Well, we know townhouses are very cyclical and they're either in vogue, out of vogue, in vogue, out of vogue, and there's specific people for townhouse buying. And it's always been that way. So, we, but again, I think the, uh, I, I, I think the, the time for that. Uh, is we're not really in a townhouse market at the moment, but you know who knows? We we um, we might get there. Twenty feet of frontage is standard. Twenty five feet is gold standard. Width and depth are what buyers are looking for. So you know, a buyer said to me not too long ago, "What's the difference between twenty feet wide and twenty five feet wide?" And my answer was five more feet. The <laughs> room is five feet wider. I mean, you know, if that's not, well, I don't want to spend millions of dollars more for five feet more. Okay, you don't have to. It does Massive. make such you a difference. You can buy a 17 footer or a 19 footer, right? I, as a broker, I was- um, It makes all the difference. I was like, I was amazed the first time I, I noticed the townhouse. I was like, this seems huge. And I found out, oh yeah, that's a 25 footer. And I'm like, oh, it may, I mean, that five feet makes such a difference. It makes huge. all the difference. It really, really does. I mean, we, 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 I joke and say, well, it's five feet bigger, <laughs> but guess what? That makes a huge difference. Think about a room five feet wider, you know, come yeah. on. It makes all the sense in the world. Um, where are we with the, uh, where are we with the townhouse market in, in your world? I mean, do you see any interest in people wanting to buy? I see zero. Well, it depends. So, I mean, so Jordan's a hundred percent right. I mean, Manhattan townhouse market is struggling to put it nicely. The Brooklyn townhouse market is a totally different animal. Yeah. That market, I would argue, is one of the hottest sub-markets in the whole city. It's very constrained by supply. You have a huge amount of demand. And the entry price point relative to Manhattan, Manhattan is, is like off, 50 cents on the dollar. Off the so when you look at Brooklyn from 2 to $4 million, depending on the neighborhood, that market is very, very strong. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... Um, very interesting. When you think of like, I always find there's a lot of buyers who are looking at like three and four bedroom condos in Manhattan... And then townhouses in Brooklyn. Like, those are their two options. So. All right. Well, that's our story for today. That's the broadcast for this morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks to my guest, uh, Steve Lasher, as always, and the panel. Shoot for the moon, everyone. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. And the only person you should try to be better than is the person you were yesterday. I actually said that to somebody two days ago. Be kind to one another for all of us at Voice America all around the world. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.